I was listening to something earlier, and it mentioned the Sermon on the Mount, the line from the Sermon on the Mount, which is, resist not evil. And it was a guy named John Butler, who I like, an old, I believe he's in England, an old guy, not very uh, not very uh, well-versed in who he is and what his background is, and I'm going to try not to parrot him too much. I do like to express my own ideas. I don't like to be one of these people who's like, I'm just going to not tell people the things I pay attention to and then say exactly what they said and claim it's my own. You know, I try not to do that, although a little bit's inevitable. Um, but John Butler mentioned the Sermon on the Mount, and he, he mentioned, you know, resist not evil. And as he said, you know, because when you pay attention to something, you cause it to grow. When you acknowledge something, you cause it to grow. And that's very similar to the idea that I like to get out on here, which is the idea that participation is a form of celebration. And acknowledging something or giving it your attention is that. It is that form of participation. It will cause that thing to grow. For example, I mean, if you're... If let's say you hate the Dallas Cowboys, you're a football fan, you hate the Dallas Cowboys, you don't think they should even be a football team. Well, the answer to that isn't to become a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles or the Washington Redskins. It isn't to start supporting their rivals because their rivals ensure that the Dallas Cowboys will continue to play football games. You know, for that matter, you know, if if you don't think the Dallas Cowboys should exist, you shouldn't become a football player and join the Philadelphia Eagles and go stand out on the field and say, I'm not playing in this game. Because they're just going to score on you and you're going to stand there and you're you're still going to be participating in the game while they win. Uh, So the idea is that by participating at all, whether it's as a fan or as a player, you are legitimizing that thing. You are saying... You're a valid football team because we're a football team and we're going to play you. Or I'm a football fan and I don't think you should exist, but I'm going to support a team that's playing you in a game. And by playing in the game, you are participating in one thing. And that one thing, the game, is what makes you what you are. So you have to be very careful about that in life. And people can easily do it with their... You know, if you're one of these people who somehow develops social rivalries where you can't be in the same place at the same time in town, I have no idea how that actually happens, but it's real. It actually does play out. But if you're, if you're someone who finds yourself in that situation, the answer isn't to go to the hangout where your rival hangs out, where your enemy hangs out, and then just pretend not to see them. You know, you look in every spot of the room. You're, you're just looking all over the room, hanging out, but you manage to never look in that one spot where your rival's hanging out. And even though you're not looking at them, everything about what you are doing is acknowledging them. It's the example I gave in an episode recently about you hear, like, plates crash in the kitchen of a restaurant and everybody turns their head, and you're the only one who doesn't turn your head to look and see what it was. And by protesting a natural response in that way, you're actually participating even more. This act of defiance is actually an act of acknowledgement. It's an act of encouragement. And so it's the same thing when you go to a place and you just pretend someone isn't there. 
even though you went just to see if they were. I mean, people will lie to themselves in that way when they're in that situation. It's not about, oh, I'm going to go to the place where I know my enemy's at, and uh, I'm, I'm going to deliberately feed into that, feed into that game we're playing, participate in that game this person and I have developed. You know, people will lie to themselves, and they're like, I, I'm just going to go check. I'm just going to go check on that person. But really, it's like if that person is truly something that you are opposed to, if that person is something that you are you truly want to take a stand against, well, it seems like the best answer is just to literally do that. Take a stand. Stand still. Stay where you're at. Go to the place where you don't think they're going to be. And not that you have to live your life in aversion to that person, but when you do that, you know, when you just focus on yourself, you know, you're going to ignore that person by by nature. It's not going to be something that you don't have to do this dramatic, you know, exhibition of pretending to ignore someone because you'll just naturally do it. Uh, so, but you can trick yourself by being like, well, I'm just going to see. You know, for the same reason someone goes to the comments section on Facebook and, and of a, let's say there's a news article and someone goes to the comments section and they... They have to say something, and they know that in saying something, it's going to cause their you know people who they consider their enemy to argue with them. And what they're doing is, you know, no matter how strongly they believe in what they believe, they are looking for that attention. They are looking to feed off that kind of attention of having somebody argue with them because if they're not getting the kind of attention they want, or I mean, there's a lot of people who don't even want positive attention. You know, as much as people, you know, are crippled by low self-esteem and, you know, do want compliments, it's like there's a certain type of person who doesn't even, they actually value negative attention more. It does more for them. They feed off that more. Uh, so some people do that, you know, by going to a comment section and saying something provocative that expresses what you believe. But it's not about just believing what you believe or even trying to share what you believe to be the truth or right or the right thing. It's about trying to get a certain response. And, you know, and you, you can even see in those comment sections where they'll get people who reply and say, I agree. I agree with you. You go, you know, you'll see people who do that, and the person who is being agreed with doesn't even care that much about the person who agrees with them. They might say thank you, but they're not going to go back and forth about it. Whereas the person who disagrees, and especially disagrees vehemently, the person who resists, that person and the original person are going to go back and forth probably for as long as they can. And they will, and they do, and they are right now as, as I say this. Uh, so, you know, it's not about it's not about being right. Even it's about getting a certain kind of attention. And as um, John Butler said, you know, it's you know, attention causes things to grow. Attention encourages things, and I use that to talk about the whole Easter thing too. Recently, where I was saying these people who, um, you know, maybe other people don't know a lot of people like this for whatever reason. I do. But people who feel the need to, you know, crack some kind of joke about zombie Jesus, which is fine. Please make whatever jokes you want about anything you want. 
but there's this i they but also they have this opposition to the fact that easter is a holiday celebrated by christians and they have to say something about it but by saying something about it they are participating and in and therefore encouraging the very idea of easter easter has become a part of their day and if it's a part of the, their day it doesn't matter whether you're opposed to it or not you're making it real whether you love Easter or hate Easter, by acknowledging Easter on Easter, you are participating and encouraging and celebrating in some way the Easter holiday. So it's similar to that. By, by resisting evil, you are encouraging it. You are encouraging evil by making a grandstand against it. And I mean, think about that idea of giving something attention, feeding it, causing it to grow. I mean, you can even see that with plant life, you know, where plants need sun. They need attention from the sun in order to grow. And uh, little kids, you'll see from a very early age, little kids will do silly, fleeting things just to get a glance across the room from their parents. And if people don't get enough attention from their parents and they're neglected, that causes all kinds of issues. That child doesn't grow right. They don't develop right. You know, neglect basically means not getting the attention that we all need. And of course, sometimes we crave more attention than we actually need, you know, but that's a whole other thing. And that's what leads people to make Facebook comments. That's what leads people to fix themselves to something. Because that's kind of what happens when you resist something too heavily, is you get fixed in the orbit of that very thing. And if your attention is feeding that thing, it might as well grow to the size of a planet, and you might as well be a moon. And in that case, you know, if if that thing that you are fighting against is this idea of evil, if you're like, I'm going to be so righteous that all I do is talk about how I'm against evil, how I'm fighting evil, you know, I'm just going to be a good person who's fighting evil. You know, if you're that person, then you become a moon orbiting the planet of evil. And you might not be evil. I'm not saying you're evil by proxy. But evil's going to do things like send a rocket to your moon, to you. And they're going to plant a flag there. So when you're fixed in that orbit, when you're like, I'm opposed to evil, you know, you become a moon orbiting the planet of evil, and evil plants its flag on you and sends people there once in a while. You know, that's what ends up happening. That very thing that you don't want to exist, you've just legitimized it. It's what happened when Donald Trump declared he was a candidate for president. You know, nobody initially took it seriously. It was just like every other celebrity that makes statements like that, and he was no different at that time. And he might have had some support, but he was by no means heavily supported within, you know, the Republican realm. You know, but what legitimized Donald Trump was the opposition to Donald Trump. And, you know, I'm not claiming to be Nostradamus, but I did predict that he was going to win at a certain point. Uh, and I remember it bothered people I knew when I said that. I was with a girl at the time I, who I really liked, and uh, you know, I said, "Oh, he's going to win." And I remember just you could you could hear that you could feel the air get sucked out of the room because when I said that, I think she interpreted that as like I somehow wanted that, but it was just I just very neutrally said it. It was an opinion that I the second I saw the opposition to him, I said, "Oh, he's been legitimized." And it's not that the people who supported him really liked him. 
a lot of them at least, it was that they didn't like the people who vocally opposed him. So they were opposed to the opposition that had declared themselves fixed to him. They were orbiting around him at that point, and the people who supported him, you know, in large part, they were kind of people who were disenfranchised and detached from modern politics. That's how I saw it, at least. You know, maybe it doesn't speak for all of them or most of them, but that was definitely an element behind, you know, his the support he received. It was people who weren't necessarily supporting him, but they were in opposition to the people opposed to him. And that's something to be aware of and careful of, you know, because sometimes you can feed that very thing that you are opposed to by giving it your attention. You can cause it to grow. But does that mean you shouldn't oppose it? I mean, that's the thing, is there are situations where you do need to resist. You know, if some guy's stealing an old lady's purse in front of you, you could say, oh, well, you know, by not acknowledging it, I'm not going to feed it. By not acknowledging the thief, he doesn't exist. You know, because that's not true. You know, you should probably, if you're a decent person, you should probably do something. Either try to stop him or call the police, help the old lady. You should participate in some way. Because your participation isn't about legitimizing the thief. It's about helping the old lady. So there's a constructive side to it. You know, because you're not going to chase down the thief, beat him up, and then take the purse for yourself. Although some people might. Some people might do that. Um, uh, but, uh... Uh, do that, Jesus. Um, now I'm going to have a whole bunch of people who hate me. They're going to turn all their hatred for these other things going on in the world onto me because I said do that. Um, no, it turns out I'm going to focus all my hatred onto me because of that. No, but uh, you know, you can see where it's like in this situation where it's like you're not doing it because you just want to punish the thief. You're doing. You're ultimately doing what's best for the old lady. And that's the same approach you should take to politics, if you can. I mean, when things get large and societal, I mean, it's easy when it's an immediate personal situation, an interaction that you are directly participating in. But it's, it's kind of like that idea of like a few years ago when people started saying words or violence. It's like, how about you save that word for situations that actually involve the thing everybody knows called violence, physical violence. How about you call things violent when they're actually violent? And if what you mean is, you know, by having certain viewpoints or expressing certain things, you are, in, you know, encouraging potential violent behavior, say that. Because that's an effective statement, too, especially if you have some kind of evidence for it. Like, oh, in climates where these sorts of views have been expressed, these sorts of results have come of that. And there's a correlation here. You know, you should be that specific about it rather than just saying words are violence. Um, you know, get specific about it because, you know, you don't want something like violence to lose its meaning. You don't want people to be scratching their heads in some sort of, you know, the boy who cried wolf confusion because you called everything violent. And then when something violent actually happens, nobody believes you because you've spread the word too thin, especially a word that everybody fundamentally understands to mean a certain thing. 
And I feel like it's the same. The reason I bring up that example is because it, it gets into that territory. It's like when things become abstracted. You know, in the same way that that refers to an abstract form of violence. It simplifies what should be a longer statement into one word, and in doing that, it turns violence into an abstract idea, when the reality of actual physical violence is the least abstract thing you can imagine. Uh, And it's what plays out politically, too, where it's like, well, yeah, everybody understands the idea of saving an old lady from a mugger. But when it gets into the political version of that... Everybody is always acting like if you don't agree with them, you agree with the mugger. If you don't support good, you support evil. If you don't resist evil, you support evil. You're encouraging evil. And that's not true at all. You know, there is a... It's not just a gray area. Because sometimes when people talk about the gray area, they have a tendency to think of it as one solid color gray, when of course it's a gradient. And there's tones within that spectrum that almost look black, but they're still a little bit gray. And there's tones, too, that look almost white, but they're still a very, very light gray. And you shouldn't think of, you shouldn't think of the space between black and white or good, or good and evil as one thing unto itself either. And we have a tendency to do that. Like, if you're not for us, you're against us. And people actually say that non-ironically. People actually say, if you're not for us, you're against us, and call people fence-sitters. Because the thing is, you can exist in between two things, and I don't like the idea of saying in between, because all of these things imply like a blend or a compromise, and just because you're not on the furthest extreme this way and the furthest extreme that way doesn't mean that everything apart from that is just like a blend of it. Like, even calling it a gray area is something I'm self-conscious of because I don't feel like that really the visual of that is still too fixed. Uh, but it's it's really the only thing I can think of right now. And as a side note, I really wish that the U.S. political parties used the tones black and white, the shades black and white. And uh, it would just make things a lot... It would make things aesthetically more beautiful, almost medieval in a strange way. And I'm not going to say which one would have which, or the Republicans would have white, the liberals, the Democrats. The Democrats would have... Uh, Black, you know, I'm not going to say which would have which. Uh, it's, it doesn't matter. Either one can have either one. Uh, but I, I wish that that was the case. I don't really like the red and the blue. I feel like the red and the blue it just makes me think of like Slurpees or something, which might be fitting. But uh, I think black and white. If one party had black, the other had white, it would be oddly medieval. I don't know why it makes me think of Middle Ages. I'm thinking of standard bearers and. Uh, flags and all of that, but uh, black and white, that'd be cool for our political parties, and of course the independent could have gray, but even then, they wouldn't always have the same color gray, depending on who the independent was, they could have a different shade of gray, like if someone is a libertarian independent, you know, they could have uh, something that's maybe a darker gray or a lighter gray, depending on what color corresponds to the conservative party, and, you know, vice versa for uh, socialists independent. It would be cool. I I would really like that. Black, white, spectrum of gray in our political system. And uh, to get back to the the original quote, though, uh, the idea of 
resist not evil. Because in that, there is this, you know, the idea that people take from that, and not everybody, maybe not most people, but there is a certain type of person who does take that for, for evil or against evil. If you're resisting not evil, you must be encouraging it in some way. And no, I don't believe that. I believe by putting your attention on something at all, you are doing more to encourage it than you would if you just stood where you are and did what you did. If you focus your attention on something, you are making your you you are making it no you're shifting your focus onto it for one, but you are giving it your awareness. And, you know, we have this idea, we, I I don't, I honestly don't include myself in that, but this idea that people who don't agree with you just haven't been convinced. They haven't been told the right information. You know, so I need to convince them. And before my mom passed away, uh, she found this quote she really loved, and she even wrote it on a a post-it note, and it said, anyone convinced of their will is of the same opinion still. And that's so true. If you're bullied into believing something, if you're coerced into believing something, you're not going to leave the room thinking, I'm sure glad they convinced me. And, you know, they were right. You know, chances are you're going to think, God, my well-being depends on some way, depends in some way on, on agreeing with them about that. You know, that's what you're going to be thinking. But secretly, you might even start thinking you, your, your opposing views might even get stronger quietly, secretly. And that's not good because if you can't express that at all and you feel like you're being attacked or marginalized or censored in some way, it's going to legitimize you. You know, it's going to, you're going to feel legitimate. You're going to think, oh, if this person thinks they have to force me to believe something else, that must mean there's really something to what I believe. And it plays into that whole, you know, being in opposition to the people who are opposed to this other thing. And it's, you're making it more about this dual opposition than even the thing that is being opposed by the one side. You know, it becomes more about the teams than it does even the game. And, I mean, it's sort of like when you watch a football game and you think, I just want this to be a good game. It's always a pleasure when you don't have any opinion on either team, although that's funny. I'll do that. Sometimes I'll watch a football game and I'll think, oh, this is going to be fun because both of these teams are competent and... I don't care who wins, so I just want them both to, I want it to be competitive and good. And you find yourself like five minutes into the game being like, I want them to win. Because you don't like one player you saw. You didn't like somebody's celebration on one team, and suddenly you're like, it's all out the window. Suddenly, until the end of the game, you're rooting for that one team. It's funny how quickly that can happen. And that's just fun. Because some of these things are fun. And something I've always said, too, is, you know, sometimes it's the person who's more similar to you that you are in greater opposition toward. Like, it's the person who's almost you. Like, they have the same exact interests. They're into the same exact weird kind of music you're into, but their top five favorite albums are different than yours, and that canyon couldn't be wider. So, you know, it's a problem. And sometimes, you know, with your friends, that's the case. You'll have a friend and, like, 
you'll your friend will send you something and you have very similar tastes so it makes sense they'll send you something they'll play something for you and you're like eh, i don't like it and they'll be like what what do you mean and so it's funny how you know you're close to this person you have very similar tastes but this one little difference in in opinion creates this big divide and if you're both sane it's fun you know if the person you're talking about is sane you know that's very fun because it's like it can be fun to hash out your difference in opinion with somebody who's very similar to you. But if that person isn't already your friend, sometimes that can be a source of greater divide than being completely different. And in that same way, too, going back to the idea of the black and white and the, you know, the fixed spectrum, where you'll see where sometimes people will attack the person who is in the gray area, but actually way closer to their side. Like, say somebody is standing on the white side and they they start pointing out you know someone's they have some misgivings or some criticism or some issue with somebody and they're treating that person like they couldn't be further away they're treating that person like they're in the darkest corner of the black side of the tennis court you know uh and there's this tendency to to see that person who's actually very close to you but there's maybe a hint of gray in their shade or tone and think like, you're just wrong, or you're my enemy. And chances are you're going to come into contact with those people more often than someone who truly is your enemy. You know, in the same way we're, we're more comfortable, like, bitching or being, you know, moody around someone we love. You know, because being comfortable doesn't just mean being comfortable all the time. When you're comfortable with someone, you also expose them to this painful comfort. You know, it's like when you're in a bad mood, you might not let your coworkers in on it. If you have any self-control, you're not going to snap at your coworker, you know, for blowing their nose. But it's like if you're at home with your, you know, mom or your spouse or your kids or just anybody that you have that level of intimacy with, of personal intimacy, of like your lives being on top of each other, uh, you know, there's a good chance you're going to snap over something petty and silly And as much as it sucks to do that or have someone you love do that to you, it's actually kind of an honor because it means that you have that close of a relationship. And of course, if it happens all the time, there's a bigger problem, but just you are exposing more of what makes you you to somebody that you're comfortable with. And I believe it's the reason why, and you see this in at all ends of the political spectrum where sometimes people have a bigger problem with somebody who mostly agrees with them than the person who completely disagrees. And, you know, there's a reason why catchphrases like the left will eat itself are a thing because that does happen. You'll see where it's happened a lot with over the last few years where, uh, you know, the modern left will just devour people who mostly agree with them but over this small hint of gray that sometimes is almost imperceptible. But if you spend all your time with around that level of... If you spend all your time just immersed in one color, you're going to start to see the smallest nuances related and you know, in and around that color. So, And that's what happens, you see, with political parties, where when people wall themselves in, they're part of these feedback loops, everything's got to be the shade of white. Everything's got to be the brightest white that you can imagine. 
you know, it's going to be very noticeable if somebody says something with a hint of gray in it, and there will be a tendency to either try to convince that person to come all the way, step it, stand where I'm standing, or you don't, you're not my friend. Stand where I'm standing, or you're not my friend. It's very easy to do that, and you see it done everywhere. It's not just one group who does that. It seems to be something that we all do. And like I was mentioning earlier, there's also a tendency to see the gray area as one tone or a much uh, more limited gradient than it is. You know, just to see it as one big block of gray. And, you know, that's not the case. It's not the case. And, uh, you know, with that attitude, too, there's also this idea that anybody who exists in that gray area is somehow trying to make the two extremes compromise or trying to be a fence sitter, because that's an accusation. They think that that gray area between the two extremes is, is, is so... They think that gray area is a platform that you can sit on. They think it's the top of a fence and that somebody can actually sit on that thing in between black and white you know it's, it's it's just this fantasy really and the only reason people do it the only reason that makes sense in anybody's brain the only reason why anybody ever expresses that is to try to get somebody to come over to their side or to go even further on the opposite side so that they can justify hating them so that they can focus their negative attention on them without any guilt and that's the reason why we sometimes take people who are actually very similar to us and turn them into our rival. They, we turn them into our enemy. Oh, you know, we both... Are, oh, our favorite band is both Bathory. Bath, battery. We both like Battery. But he says his favorite album is uh, Return of Darkness and Evil. And my favorite, am, my, my favorite album is Hammerheart. What a fucking prick. You know, don't even come over to my house. Don't even come over to my house. You know, you don't even, you're understanding a battery. You know, uh, flush it down your toilet. You know, it's easy to do that. It's like, oh, we like the same favorite band, but have a different opinion of what is the, what the best album is. Can you believe this, cuck sucker? You know, it's easy to get into that sort of mode. And uh, hold on, I'm, I'm just trying to keep my computer running. I'm just trying to keep my computer running here. Um, uh, that goes for my brain as well. I'm just trying to keep that computer roll, rolling. Let's keep this computer rolling. Um, resist not evil. Going back to that again and again. That's what prompted all this, is thinking about that. And how that fits into what I've been talking about lately, too, with not running towards something, but not running away from it. And to me, the idea of resist not evil is don't run away from evil. Because when you run away from evil, that means it's chasing you. You now have a relationship to evil. And eventually you'll probably run toward it. You know, because there is a similar relationship there where, you know, you don't have to run towards something and you don't have to run away from it. You can quit drinking without demonizing alcohol. You can quit drinking without having to run away from the existence of alcohol. You can not encourage evil. You can stand for good without actively opposing evil. 
you don't have to have a fixed relationship to that thing. And it kind of plays into the idea of just criticism as a whole. I know that, you know, when I used to think that my opinion really mattered, the idea was that somehow the truth will get lost if I don't say this. And sometimes that meant saying things that were rude, that were disrespectful. And the idea was that, oh, if I don't say this, nobody will, and if nobody says it, the truth won't be acknowledged. Because somehow if the truth doesn't get acknowledged, it's not true? You know, if it's true, it doesn't need me to say it, does it? And so I was very fixed on that idea of just like, if I don't speak some kind of truth, it won't get spoken at all, and therefore it's like the truth never existed. But really, I was putting attention on these things that I didn't like when I did that. If I had a criticism of something or somebody, I was putting my attention on that very thing. I was legitimizing that thing. And there's a reason why the, there's the cliché statement. Uh, the cliché is very popular. Uh, you know, certain people like this one a lot. But, you know, all press is good press or there's no such thing as bad press. It's a very common, popular one, and it's that very idea. It's not true all the time. Sometimes there's bad press. It's just no, it's, it's a no-win. Sometimes something comes out, there's a story about somebody or an event, and it's just, there's no, nobody's going to gain anything from this. There's only loss. Sometimes bad press is bad press, but for the most part, there's a reason why that statement is so popular, and there's a reason why it's so true. Because uh, giving attention to something legitimizes it, it feeds it, it makes it grow, it turns it into a planet that other things can revolve around, and the first things to revolve around it are the things that define it, are the things that acknowledge it, are the things that pay attention to it. And, uh, you know, just to get back too, to the idea of like trying to convince somebody, because what you're doing when you state the truth, what you think is the truth, or when you give a certain opinion or a criticism, is that you're, in some way, you, you're wanting attention for yourself, for one. So you're trying to grow. You're trying to get some kind of attention, you know, yourself. Otherwise, why would you express it? You know, why would you express something if you weren't in some way seeking acknowledgement? Or, or, but beyond that, you know, your secondary motive, because when you express something, your first motive is always to be acknowledged. And it's like when you post something on social media, you're not doing it so people won't see it. You know, you might not actually crave likes or feedback or any of that. You might have a very healthy relationship. But every single person who posts something on social media is doing something on the most basic level because they want to be acknowledged and seen. They want people's awareness to be focused on them. And there's a beauty in that. You know, there's a beauty in the fact that dogs, babies... People of all ages. There's a, there's a beauty in people wanting to get attention and be acknowledged. And even if you have a totally, you're totally secure and you still just want that basic acknowledgement. Because even the most selfless, humble person, chances are, unless they got their wiring is really off, they'd rather have a compliment than not. You know, chances are, you know, most people... Uh, they'd rather be acknowledged. I mean, whether you're on a stage, whether you're some kind of performer, whether you're doing a podcast, whether you are, 
you know, you might just be at happy hour with friends and you make a joke, you know, and yeah, it's about the joke, but there, you wouldn't have opened your mouth if you didn't want it to be acknowledged. If you, if you yourself didn't want some level of attention on this thing that you thought was important enough to express, um, so, uh, attention is currency, you know, and it's plants get attention from the sun and they grow. Babies get attention from their parents and they are more well-adjusted than babies that get ignored. You know, things that get paid attention to tend to thrive more than things that don't. And of course, narcissists know how to get every last drop out of any amount of attention and they will seek negative attention if they can't get positive attention and actually might prefer negative attention because it lasts longer. It's more memorable. There's a, that negativity bias that, uh, you know, uh, famous performers will talk about how they'll notice the one person in a crowd of thousands who isn't laughing or isn't having a good time at a performance and that becomes the person that they notice. You know, there's even a parable in the Bible, um, you know, the shepherd who, I believe it's a hundred sheep and one of them is lost in the mountains and they devote themselves, even though, even though 99 of the sheep, and I might be getting the numbers wrong, uh, but 99 of the sheep are, you know, with the shepherd in the field, but yet the shepherd goes and seeks out that one, the stray sheep. And so we all kind of do that in our own way. We notice the stray sheep. It, it, it ends up catching our attention longer. Um, but, uh, you know, the idea of attention itself, you know, because on this show I've talked before about how, you know, I see the most basic universal form of human intelligence or any intelligence among at least like what we normally consider living things, you know, most of them, uh, is awareness, the ability to perceive. If we know something can see and react, that is a form of intelligence. And in that way, I believe awareness is very much akin to knowledge, you know, because it doesn't matter how much you read, how much you study. If you pay attention to enough things, just living life, let's, you know, and people did this, you know, books haven't always existed, you know, duh. Uh, but but if you pay attention to enough things, you will gain knowledge. And, you know, so awareness is this form of intelligence. And what is awareness? It's paying attention to certain things. So it's only natural that paying attention to things feeds them and causes them to grow, no matter what they are, no matter whether we love them or hate them. And that's why we have to be very careful about what we focus on, what we pay attention to, because we are devoting our awareness to that. We are giving our intelligence to that. That thing is absorbing some of our intelligence. So that's a reason to be very careful about what you focus on, what you give attention to. And it's especially true for something like good and evil, right and wrong, left and right, you know, moral values. You have to be very careful about that because if you focus on the thing that you think is immoral, if you fix yourself to immorality in an attempt to somehow prove your own morality, that's a tough road. You know, that's a very tough road to be on because now you depend on immorality as much as, you know, you're, a, you're in a fixed relationship with that thing. Part of your identity is based on this thing that you don't think should exist. 
Because if you think something shouldn't exist, you don't become a fan of the team that's playing that thing. You know, in the same way I mentioned, you don't become a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles if you want the Dallas Cowboys not to exist. You know, you... It's, it's the same thing for um, paying attention. Because what, that's what being a fan is, too. It means you watch something. You know, you watch something. You pay attention. You devote your intelligence to it. You devote your senses to it. And uh, when you define yourself in opposition to something, when you define yourself as a resistor of evil, you depend on evil. Your identity is based around evil. You are in a relationship with evil, and the whole idea should be not letting evil in. The The whole idea should be not having a relationship to evil, not encouraging it. Because if part of your identity depends on evil, you're going to encourage it in some way, and it's going to start encouraging you. In the same example I used of a planet, the planet of evil, and you're a moon, you know, rotating it, evil is going to eventually send a couple guys up. They're going to send a couple guys, and they're going to plant a a big-ass flag. (laughs) They're going to plant a big-ass flag in one of your craters. Uh, and they're going to study you. Evil's going to study you. You don't want that's even creepier than evil planting a flag on you in one of your craters. Evil stu- think about being studied by evil. And it does, you know, if you uh cuz that's the thing, when you acknowledge evil, when you give attention to evil, it's just like like a fucking Nietzsche quote, you know, the abyss staring back into you. It's it's basically that idea. And of course, evil is the abyss. Uh, evil, evil is where you know. Evil is the abyss, basically. I don't need to break that down. And this happens politically. You know, as people who have built their entire lives the last four years about being in opposition to Donald Trump, and it's, you know, it's a tough one because it's like if you truly don't think somebody should be where they're at, and you think this person is an immediate threat or even a long-term threat, whatever you think, if you think that person is truly a threat to the things that you value, to you, to the people that you value, to all people. However you see it, you know, it's a slippery uh, road. It's a tough road. It's, it's, it's a tough climb, a crumbly, rocky uh, climb uh, without much guidance, really. Because the thing that you use as a guide is the thing that you're opposed to. You know, it's, it's like... Uh, let's say it is a mountain. Let's say that your opposition to, say, some political leader that you hate is this treacherous mountain, but you think that it is worth being the hero who climbs that mountain and prevails. And you know it's going to be difficult, but it's worth it. At the end of the day, you know, that person is the mountain. That thing that you are opposed to is the mountain, and you are climbing up it. You are on it. You are fixed to it. It's just whether it's worth it or whether you can actually do anything that way. Maybe it's better to live by example elsewhere. Maybe it's better to climb a different mountain that represents something else. If there truly is good and evil, rather than trying to climb the evil mountain to like what? Like kick a rock at the top of it? You know, I'm going to kick one of the rocks up here. What are you even going to do when you get there? What are you even going to do when you get to the position where you might be able to do something? Do you even know? I mean, that's the other question. When you're opposed to something, do you even know what your plan is? 
or what the what's in the realm of possibility you know it could truly be i'm going to climb the evil mountain to topple it and you get up there and all you can do is kick a pebble off the top and pat yourself on the back and now guess what you're up at the top of the evil mountain and you pissed it off by kicking one of its pebbles by one of its peb uh, pebbles um <laughs> You know, so that's where you're at. Maybe a better decision would be to climb the mountain of good. Even if that's difficult and it's still a mountain, still a mountain, baby. Still going to be a mountain, still going to be a tough climb and maybe even tougher. But you're going to climb the mountain of good and you'll get up there and and say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to kick a pebble off. In fact, I'm going to, you know, just look at this pebble and it's a pretty cool little pebble, you know, you might get up there and do that. And that might set the better example by being like, you know, this is a better use of my time, this is more constructive. And even if it's not even because that might happen too, it probably will. I mean, I don't think it's any different. You climb the mountain of good, you get up there, and you're probably going to say, well, I don't know what to do now. In the same way you don't know what to do. Once you've climbed the mountain of evil, you might, you were expecting somebody to be there waiting for you. You thought somebody was just going to be there, like, ah, oh, I knew you'd come. Like it's some sort of a fantasy story, you know? If you're lucky, if you're lucky. Um, but, you know, when you get to the top of the good mountain, the have you ever heard of good mountain? Yeah, it's like, it's like the name of my favorite uh, ice cream company. They're fair trade. Good mountain ice cream. Cream. Um... But you might get to the top of the good mountain and think, I didn't know what I was going to do up here either. But at least you're on the good mountain. At least you're there and not stuck on the mountain of evil. So I'd say it's better to live by example than to live in opposition to something. And to, you know, not run toward the thing. And maybe that's an example. Maybe climbing the mountain of good is running toward the thing. Maybe that's attachment and the mountain of evil is aversion. So maybe you shouldn't climb a mountain at all. Maybe you should go hang out in that nice little river valley that runs between them. Maybe that's what you should do. I don't know. I, I definitely don't have a guidebook. I, you know, I'm figuring it out myself. But I, I believe that, quote, you know, resist not evil is an important one, and it's one that you should take to heart and not think that somebody who isn't resisting what you think is evil is somehow encouraging it and they and and also not to assume that you know what their plan is or assume that you know what their strategy is for dealing with evil because they might have the same definition of evil that you do and you don't need to convince them and that's 90% of the battle. If somebody already agrees with you on their own and you don't need to coerce them or brainwash them, you already have something amazing. Simply agreeing, naturally organic agreement, you already have something amazing going for you. You already have something strong that can't be broken or changed in any way. So, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, by putting yourself in a position where it's all about opposition. You quit drinking, so you're defined by the fact that you can't be around alcohol or alcoholics. You know, you, uh, 
You've been born again, so you can't be around people who uh, listen to the devil's music and partake in the devil's activities, which is probably good. You know, you should probably not be around that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just you can't define yourself by it either. Because you should have enough security to define your life, if you have to define it, by the things that you do and the things that you are, and not the things that you are fighting. Because when you fight them, you allow them to enter the ring with you. And uh, you might not be strong enough. You know, and even if you are, even if you're big and strong and you can knock evil out, or you can knock the thing that you despise out. You're still legitimizing it as your opponent. You still have a relationship to that thing. You've still, you've still allowed it to enter the ring. And, you know, is that what you want? You know, is that what you want? So I'm not saying you shouldn't have opinions. God knows I have them. I'm not saying you shouldn't resist things that you feel are counter to your interests or the interests of everyone's well-being. I'm not telling everybody just to live a, a strange life of inaction who just watches the world melt down. I'm not telling people to do that, and I'm not telling myself to do that. But this is one of the sort of internal debates that I think is healthy and has you know more benefits than than it does faults because it forces you to really you know weigh your own actions and to devote your actions toward being an example of the thing that you claim to represent rather than something that is defined by its shadow rather than something that is defined by something that it doesn't want to be but by doing that, by making that thing a part of, of your story, your story becomes dependent on that thing. And is that what you want? Do you want to be part of a story that depends on things that you don't even think should exist? You know, because you probably secretly want them to exist. Because somewhere you know, in your heart, when you take a stand, you know, you want that very thing to continue to exist because you don't know what you would be without it. And, you know, the most extreme example is evil. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.